This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 39. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is, of course, Session 39, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Welcome new listeners. Welcome old listeners. And uh, just want to say a quick thank you to all of you, no matter how long you've been listening. We have officially crossed over the 100,000 download mark for the show. And we also have crossed over the one-year anniversary of the show. So happy birthday to us. And uh, thank you to all of you who listen. It's greatly appreciated. I won't make that big of a deal about it, but it's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing, I got to say. So today I'm, I'm going to be a little stuffy. My seven-year-old has brought a cold into the house. And so I'll, while my hearing is not affected, my voice is a bit. I've got a sc- little bit of a scratchy voice. I don't know if you can hear it. I feel it. And my nose is a little stuffed. And uh, I keep having to uh, blow my nose every now and then. Although I'll spare you that excruciating sonic treat <laughs> for this show and we'll uh, we'll skip that. I'll I'll make sure and edit that out. But I do have a great show for you today. I have my good friend John Greenham on, mastering engineer John Greenham, works out of Infrasonic in Los Angeles, and John will be joining us today. And we will be basically uh, having a a regular old conversation that John and I always do. It, we're just going to turn that conversation into uh, a, an interview, and I'll ask him a bunch of questions that I don't usually ask him. Although we do discuss you know, survival things from time to time and have over the years. So that's it. John Greenham coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Looking forward to that. So tonight, in the spirit of diversifying one's audio craft, if you will, I'm off to teach a a home studio kind of primer class to a group of voiceover talented people at a uh, local voiceover place. And it's something that it. I, I just wanted to mention, you know, I moved to this, uh, I live in this town, uh, Lafayette, California, um, cool place, you know, a little on the suburban side. And after having lived in San Francisco for 12 years and Oakland for 10 years, it was, you know, it was a little different, but you know, you have kids, you typically move to the burbs and you do that parent thing. You know, we, we wanted to move here because the schools were great, but, and we did. So I've been here now, I think about four or five years it's been. And one thing that, um, I want to bring up is when you come to a new town or maybe you've been in a town for a while and you don't really pay that close attention to what's going on in the town. Well, I'm here to say that you should because driving around at some point, I discovered this place, this voiceover place. So I'm driving down the street and I look and I see this sign and I thought, I've never seen that before. Hmm. A voiceover place. Maybe I should, uh, maybe I should get in touch. So Long story short, I just went ahead and uh, did a little Googling, figured out who they were, sent out an email just introducing myself and saying, hey, you know, maybe we have some common interests, um, you know, audio-wise, business-wise. Would you like to uh, get together and have a cup of coffee? And uh, may I stop by the studio? And they were very welcoming. And they uh, had me over and we had some coffee. And that, that's been, uh, that, that actually has turned into a great relationship just because it's not only has it given me a place to do some, uh, record some voiceovers cause they have a nice ISO booth there, but also it's given me uh, a little bit of extra work because they call on me for a lot of, uh, tech issues for, you know, pro tools issues or setup issues, signal flow issues. And so, you know, it's, very close to my house. So it's a quick drive. I can be there in like five, 10 minutes at most. It's turned into a a really good thing in that department. And I eventually, you know, guided them into some new gear purchase decisions, which might possibly render my, my tech help uh, useless because I think I've got them into a system that works much better for them. They have asked me to participate in or, or lead this audio, uh, this home studio class. And I thought, you know, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that to you. So maybe you're in a town that, uh, has a situation like this, something to consider, you know, doing, you know, instead of maybe you don't want to go to work for a school, I've worked for a school and it's cool. It has its pluses and its minuses, 
but kind of being a freelance teacher also has its pluses and minuses. Um, the pluses is, is, you know, you're in complete control of everything, the curriculum, the timing, all of it. The minuses of course is it's irregular. So something to consider just something I wanted to bring up and, uh, I'll report back on how, how the class went. I think it's going to be a good thing. We tend to forget. I think that we can, as recording people, there are many types of audio opportunities out there. Audio is in demand in many, many areas. So, you know, to the students that are listening and even to the old school folks that are listening that are like, you know, trying to think of what to do to diversify, you know, something as simple as, you know, there's a lot of cassette recordings out there of people's relatives. I've, I've been in situations where I've taken, you know, somebody's aunt who survived the Holocaust. And it was like, you know, the, the, the aunt was dead and this woman really, really wanted to preserve this cassette and get it all cleaned up. Cause it was a little crazy. You know, you could do stuff like that. You can digitize people's cassettes. You can then, you know, do some sweetening, some mastering, some restoration to their cassette to, just to help out, make the audio quality better, but also as just a secondary way to earn some income. It's, um, there's all kinds of possibilities out there. You just, sometimes if you're in a, in kind of a, I know sometimes we can get into a dark hole with what am I going to do to make money this month? Some of us who don't have a day job really shudder at the thought of, oh man, is this it? Is this the month I've got to go get a day job, a sales job, a coffee job, a, or go, you know, go back and you, maybe some of you who have degrees, you know, might go back and, oh, do I have to go back to finance or, you know, whatever it is, programming. So these are, there's many ideas out there. And if you're in that position um, and you want to stay working in audio and you want to continue being your own boss, well, you got to suck it up and think, you know what, the worst day cleaning up somebody's cassette is better than the best day at another job that you may not like. So think about it, diversify, don't get too caught up in well, how's that going to work with my reputation? You know, I make the best of the best metal records and I can't be seen doing cassettes for people. It's like, you know what? There's people that have no idea who you are and there's people who don't buy the records you make. And as far as they're concerned, you have a skill and you need to utilize that skill to help them out and make some money, a small amount of money, whether, you know, whether it's 50 bucks, a hundred bucks, you know, 50 or a hundred bucks can pay somebody's uh, cell phone bill. Or if you, you know, I live in a town that fortunately has a Trader Joe's and a hundred dollars at Trader Joe's goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, really. And if you've got a family, you need to really, really put the pedal to the metal and not be too shy or too proud as far as I'm concerned about doing audio in that, in that capacity. So, so that's it. That's my rant for today. Just thinking outside the box of the typical music production thing, or maybe it's a slow, slow time in uh, location sound for you or post-production sound, and you need some other things to do. You know, um, even the oldest of the old DAWs on an ancient computer, as long as there's two inputs, uh, if you've got a cassette deck or you want to go buy a cassette deck at a, a flea market or a pawn shop, you know, do it and uh, clean it up and get some cassettes transferred in for some people. And on, and on that note too, uh, I still have my Panasonic 3700 DAP machine and it still works great. It works fantastic. Uh, that, and I've got a mini disc player. So you might think, oh, I got rid of that or, I, or I'm thinking about selling that. Well, you know what? Holding on to things like that might be worth more in the long run than what you could get out of them in the short term. I mean, what are you going to get out of a DAP machine? 50 bucks on eBay, maybe, maybe amongst all the other DAP machines and cassettes. Come on. It's yeah. Think about it. I think it's good stuff. All right. That's it. I'll, I'll shut up. Let's move on to my friend, John Greenham here on the working class audio podcast. Joining us right now, Mr. John Greenham here on WCA. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It'll be funny because it's basically like we're having a normal call, but I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions that I don't normally ask, I guess. <laughs> I don't oh, know, we'll see. but I've probably asked you everything over the course of time. I think we've probably been over just about everything at one time or another, Matt. Uh, you're calling me from what studio? Uh, Big Bad Sound, LA. It's my friend Zach Fisher's place in uh, Echo Park. Ah. And uh, 
Yeah, it's a nice little spot. Zach's, I think, going to do very well, actually. So, in fact, you uh, might want to have him on your uh, podcast at some point because yeah, I think he would. What's uh, is there a website? BigBadSoundLA.com. I, I believe there is. Yeah, I, I don't know for sure, but I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, for the, the audience doesn't know, John and I have been friends for many years, and uh, I can't really remember how we met. Probably through uh, Paul Stubblebein and Michael Romanowski. Um, probably through those connections, I think. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember somewhere along the line. You know, I'm repeating stuff that obviously you and I know, but the audience doesn't know. You you lived in San Francisco for many many years. Yeah, so I started working at uh, Rocket Lab in like the I can't remember which decade it was now, but I guess the late '90s, and then uh, had a room above SIR actually, in, down there on Folsom Street. And then I uh, worked with Stubblebine over at uh, Hyde Street Studio C in the Hyde Street Studios Complex, which is a wonderful place, as you know. And then lastly, of course, Coast Recorders, <clears throat> which is... Right. That's where we work together. At, at the time, you and I were at the, at the Mission Street building, which I just kind of... I'll call it that because at the time wasn't calling it Coast Recorders. And there was other businesses in there. You were in there. Michael Romanowski was in there. At the time, you were given an opportunity to move to Los Angeles because of going to work over at Infrasonic. Yeah, that's right. And they were building a new new building. Yeah. So, yeah, I uh, was uh, given the opportunity to move down here and work at Infrasonic, and um, it's been quite an adventure, you know? L.A. is... Uh, LA is much different than San Francisco. So when I when I first moved down here, I was thinking it wasn't that big of a deal. But then after I got down here for a while, I realized that actually it's it's a totally different thing, really. Let's talk about that for a sec. Yeah, I think for one thing, uh, what I found out was that you know if you if you master records in a certain area, might might be a good idea to stay there actually because you know you move to a place where you 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 like I got down here and realized that I didn't really know anyone. <laughs> which is you know which is a bit of a problem and so it's been a process of uh you know my clients up in san francisco have you know for the most part at this point wandered off to to work with other people and so then i had to sort of replace them with with people down here which is kind of difficult you know because la is like LA is, is a place where you it's all about networking you know you have to go to the right parties but even if you do go to the right parties you'll be you know you'll be at this party and there will be Howie Weinberg you know who's got more gold records you know there's 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 a lot of competition there's a lot of people doing stuff so so it's actually been pretty interesting i have to say what are the biggest differences in San Francisco and Los Angeles is for, in terms of being a mastering engineer, mm. whether that's clients or the industry or the ecosystem of the music business in the, in these two cities, obviously San Francisco, as we know, is not a primary market. Well, yeah, that's true. And I mean, there's a lot of labels down here still. There, there's work that actually has a deadline and it has certain things have to be done by certain times. It's come through a chain of you know, recording engineers and mixers and producers and so forth. So there's a lot more of that kind of stuff, which is nice, actually, because it's, um, for one thing, you know, it, it, it sort of, I guess the main difference is from a mastering point of view is that it has to be done correctly and right away. You know, you don't get a lot of chances to fool around with it or there's not a lot of tweakage goes on. It's sort of there, you know, on a certain level, people send you stuff and they expect you to get it right. It's actually fun. Yeah, it's actually, I, I, I enjoy that part of it. So. And versus San Francisco, where most of your work, I would assume, came from indie artists, and there was maybe a couple rounds of mastering that went down? Well, not necessarily a couple of rounds, but just uh, generally a slower pace. You know, you'd hear from somebody, and then it would be like, okay, I'm going to bring my record in next week, and then you'd hear from them a month later, and, oh, well, you know, I decided to remix, like, that kind of stuff. So it, it, uh-huh. it tends to go on for a while. Yeah, but, you know, so down here it tends to be a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit more organized in a certain way. So Would so. you say it's more professional in some ways? Yes, I would probably say that, yeah. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bag on San Francisco or the Bay Area, but, I mean, people, it seems like the kind of have a, a schedule and an agenda and a, and a way of doing things and probably stick to a plan for the most part. Yeah. 
it's been what three years yes three and a half that years. you've been there mm -hmm. so sylvia massey and I've, I've actually made comment and re reference to this in a couple of interviews. Sylvia Massey, uh, she came from the Bay Area down to L.A., and she had said it generally takes a couple years to get acclimated and get to know people. You've been mm. there three. Mm. How do you feel? Do you mm. feel acclimated? Yeah, I'm just about getting there now, actually, I think. I think I've I've just about arrived. Yeah, it's just really uh, it's it's different. It all in Los Angeles, everything happens behind. It's not it's not sort of everything happens behind closed doors. You know, you have to know where stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's not obvious where it is. So you know, like I said, I mean, you you sort of have to go to the right parties. The the other thing is, I I think um, I, it seems like there's a sort of badge of courage that. If you you know the if you've just moved down here and you start talking to people, people don't really pay much attention to you because they probably think you're going to you know pack up and leave in six months. But I think three years is like a reasonable amount. They, they if you're still around after three years and they they've seen you around a few different places, then you know I think it's a little different. I I feel like myself. That's I feel like sort of now I'm kind of accepted. Like I'm I'm going to be here for a while. So. I don't know whether that's true or not. That's just how I feel, anyway. I think it takes a lot of um, I think it takes a lot of courage to pack up and leave a place you've been doing business at for a long time, where you have your contacts, familiarity, yeah. clients, and to go start over. You're not an old man, but you're not a young pup either, right? So to go and do what you've done, I mean, that's a little different than being in your your twenties and. Yeah, well, as I say, I'm not sure that having done it, I'm not sure that I would recommend it to uh, <laughs> to anybody else. It was a little tougher than I thought. But, you know, nonetheless, I mean, Los Angeles is the I, I know people in San Francisco hate to hear this, but it is the entertainment capital of the world, you know, and everybody's here. It's it's just, you know, it's a very exciting place to work, actually. Everybody's here or everybody comes through here at some point or another. So you know, it's just a very, it's a very exciting environment to work in, in the music thing. So I, I, I don't, overall, I don't regret it. It wasn't, like I say, it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be, basically. It's like that, so. You do a combination of things since I've known you. I, I associate you primarily as a mastering engineer, but you do a, a fair amount of mixing as well. Not anymore, really. <clears throat> Not anymore? No. Oh, okay. No, I pretty much stay away from it, actually. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm just mastering now. Mixing is, is too complicated, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a very kind of t tweaky sort of a thing. I guess it, it's like anything else, it, you know, you have to do it all the time. You, you really have to do, if you, the so mastering's the same way, you need to do it every day and then you kind of get, you, you know, you get into a groove with it. And I think mixing, probably I've gotten out of the groove, is all I probably could get back into it. You know, you have certain things that you do in mixing, and you, I've sort of forgotten. Nowadays, when I, I do mix stuff occasionally, and I sit down, and I, I can't remember all my stuff that I used to do. You know, it's like your sort of vocabulary is a bit rusty. You know, you can't express yourself properly or something. When we had this conversation yesterday, and you asked me to uh, do this podcast, I went over some of the other people on your website, and I was listening to Michael Beinhorn's uh, uh, thing, actually. Well, first of all, I was thinking, you know, those people, are, you know, they sound like incredibly organized. It's like, I I'm not sure there's that much to talk about in mastering. But, but anyway, apart from that, you know, he was saying that he had, uh, you know, he was like, he was a, a meditator, which I, I didn't know. And I'm going to have to get in touch with him about that, actually, because I, I've been doing that as well for, for like about the same length of time that I've been mastering records. And I, I think it's like you meditate, you practice meditation for 20 years, and there are times when you ask yourself, am I any better at it now than I was when I started? You know, as, you know uh, there is, and, and I, I think the process of learning to, uh, you know, mixing or mastering or whatever it is, is very much the same thing as that. It's like, you do it every day or maybe you don't do it for a while you know maybe you fall off for a bit you know but you basically do it a lot for a long period of time and sort of slowly you get better at it you know until you get to the point where you 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 can actually call yourself that but i i think i was struck by this sort of parallel between it's basically learning to do something i guess it's the ten thousand hour thing you know it's 
that. Yeah, but even, it's funny too. Like I was I was mixing uh, some stuff yesterday, and I listened back to some of the rough mixes. I was just appalled at my rough mix. I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, who did this? Oh, I did this." <laughs> and then I listened to my completed mix, and I was like, "You know that that's the that's the guy I want to be. I want to be the guy that made that mix, not the guy that made the mix that I was just rever- and and yet the mixes were like two weeks apart." Yeah. In terms of the rough mix I did versus the final mix I did. And um, although I will say the final mix took less time than the uh, rough mix. Yeah. And and yet the 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 quality and the, the power and the depth that came out in it is was drastic. Is it a thing for you that if you can really relate to the song or the music, then it's easy? And then if you can't, it's difficult. Do you think that's... You know, I had just received an email from one of the singers. We had agreed that the rough mix process, the rough mixes were made for two reasons. Uh, One, to get to a a guest pedal steel player, and two, to evaluate the vocal performances. And I had gone through and done a bunch of vocal, uh, a little bit of uh, tuning and and, uh, timing fixes. And so I sent these mixes off for the purpose of of killing those two birds with one stone. And one of the singers did not really get the message that they were rough mixes, as usual. Mm. As as many times as I said it up front, I said, when I make a rough mix, guys, it's a rough mix. And so she came back to me and had a, a pretty epic email, you know, outlining, outlining each song. Yeah. And I I very respectfully said, I think very few of your comments have to do with the vocal performance and the question of whether or not you need to redo those. They have more to do with mix issues. And as I said, that these are mix issues. Point is, is after I read her email, I had, I kind of had a, um, an agenda. I had a, um, I had a mission and my mission was, um, I need to make this mix really make these vocals the the vocals in these mixes need to be outstanding because if I'm going to talk the talk and walk the walk, I have to follow up with everything I sent her back in that email saying, wait till you hear the final mix. I think you'll be pleased. And <clears throat> you, you pretty much, I think if if you have like um, a vision and a, and a, and a focus, it makes it easier to mix or, or master. Whereas if somebody just gives you something and it's like, well, here's our stuff. Um, good luck. You don't really have, you have to search yourself for, for the, um, yeah, for the vision. Well, you know, yeah, I I think that's true. I mean, I, 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 it's like in mastering, sometimes there isn't really a lot of communication, but you, you know, you sort of have to try and give people the best thing that you can, that you think will help them. You know, so if that's, it, it's like basically a lot of it is kind of saving people from themselves. If there's like little, there's like, you know, the frequency balance problems and stuff like that. You can kind of just make it pop. But you sort of do that in mastering without people telling you, actually. In fact, they don't even know really what it is, probably. They just send it to you and you send it back and it sounds better. I, I think that's probably it. But, you know, last week I did this thing. Um, there's this uh, artist whose name is LP, which stands for uh, uh, Laura Progolisi, I think is her name. Anyway, she's, you know, she was signed to Warner Brothers. It's like, so this is basically the mastering thing. This is basically one of the aspects of it. It's like this email appears in your, you know, in your Gmail window, in your inbox. Thank you. And, uh, you know, then so it's like, hey, you know, got this track from the brilliant LP that we'd like you to master. So then you look at the other names on, and then there's like four or five names. It's a, it's a it's a thread, and then you look at the other names. So it's like and Google them and see who they are. You know, because this is like you've got no background information at all. So first of all, I had never heard of her. I looked her up. She, you know, she's she wrote uh, that song Cheers for Rihanna. She's released like three albums, a couple of EPs. She was signed to Warner Brothers. So I'm like, well, that's pretty. And then I listened to some of her stuff and she's really good, you know. And um, so then it's produced by this guy, Mike Del Rio, who, you know, has worked with Selena Gomez and Kylie Minogue and uh, mixed by 
this guy Rob Kanalski, and none of these people I had ever heard of, you know. He he mixed uh, Azalea Banks, you know, Broke with Expensive Taste, which I like the title of that. I'm not sure that I've, that I've heard it. But anyway, uh, Mary Lambert, people. So you look at it, so you get, get a sense of like what it is. Okay, these people actually know what they're doing, you know. And then, um, so Rob is like, and this is, this is like, if we, we're going to talk about the kind of, you know, what mastering engineers like to see. He very kindly sent me mixes and then he sent me what he had, uh, you know, what he'd given to the client, which was, you know, limited. So, and he said, you know, just you, you can use whatever you need to use. You know, I'll, I'm just sending you this. This is what they've been listening to. <laughs> <laughs> which is very, very considerate because a lot of times, sometimes you'll get totally sabotaged like that. Like somebody will be mixing something and they'll put like, you know, massive amounts of multi-band compression and, play, to, you know, give that to the client and then send you the mix without all that stuff on it. And you have no idea, you know, what the client's been listening to. So that, that could no be idea what the expectations have been. Exactly. Yeah. So, so in this case, he kind of spelled it out for me. Here's the thing. So I'm listening to his, you know, his mix is, is really good. It's a great song, a uh, really good mix. And his master or his, his limited thing sounded really good. And then, so I got it and I put it up and I thought, well, let's see how loud is it. And it's like, you know, about minus five RMS. It's about as loud as you could reasonably expect anything to be. And it sounds really good. So, so it's like, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> You know, I mean, it already sounds really, I, I mean, they could just actually, quite honestly, they could just go with that. <clears throat> so there's kind of like a, a a process that you go through. You think, well, I suppose y you can either play it safe and just not do very much at all. You know, just maybe a little bit of clipping or saturation or something and just send it back to them. Or you could try and do something with it. And I, I <clears throat> actually, I sort of fall into the latter category because... I always try and do something. Yeah, sometimes it, it sort of backfires on me, actually. But I, I always try and do something, you know, that maybe the other people hadn't thought of. But so, um, yeah, so in this case, I actually ran it through the analog stuff, which maybe you don't always want to do um, with something like that. But uh, that's what I did. And I had the, um, I, I basically just concentrated on the voice and uh, basically the high shelf on the Sontech, some sort of, saturation you know harmonic distortion or whatever some kind of texture mm -hmm. and just kind of i took the mix rather than the working from the really loud thing and just kind of blew it up really sent it back to them and then it was like yeah okay and then then you get the emails back sounds great i love it you know and you think thank god for that because <laughs> you don't <laughs> know mess it up. You, you don't know you know if it's like if it's because it, it basically in mastering anything you, when you're working with people on that level it's like their mixes are pretty finely tuned and anything you do to it compression wise or anything eq is going to change the mix and you think well maybe they don't want that like these little kind of you know delay things that are poking out a little more now on the sides you know so you're listening to it and you compare it to the mix what you got to begin with and you're like hmm i hope i didn't like go too far you know so you just never know it's um it's crazy talk to me a little bit about the communication process with clients and whether that's telling me stories of what not to do or or great stories like in this case you know the mix engineer clearly communicated to you mm. Here's here's what they've been listening to, which in in essence is like sending a rough mix to a mixing engineer mm -hmm. to say, here's what we've been going off of. Godspeed, you know. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in mastering, sending the the limited version to you gives you that that similar thing. Like here's what we've been working off of. Good luck. Mm. Do your thing. Make it better than that. Yeah. As far as communication is concerned, like. What do you think are the, the, the things that sabotage projects uh, between mm. mastering engineer and whether it be a record company or directly with the artist or management? Can you think of specific examples? Yeah, in, in mastering, sometimes people just send you stuff and there's really no, you don't know who it, you know, you don't know who it is or, you know, some, some people in Colorado, like, you know, also last week, some stuff I got from the blasting room in Colorado, actually. 
And uh, yeah, I didn't know the band. I didn't know the engineer. I didn't know anything about it. You know, and I, I, I did, but, but, you know, so it depends. I mean, really, if, if it's within a genre, then it's no problem. You know what this is supposed to sound like. If it's like, it's supposed to sound like 80s Brit pop or it's like indie pop or whatever it is, then actually you don't need that much information because you, you kind of know. But not everything's like that. You know, some things can fool you. Um, I worked with this guy, Japanese guy, actually, he was... I kind of thought it was like smooth jazz, but then it turned out he came over to the studio because he was like, he had some questions about the master. Turned out there was rap music actually, but I didn't recognize it as such. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, that kind of thing, that can be a little weird. But generally, it's, I think it's a good idea to have a talk with people, find out what, you know, what they're about. They could send references, you know, of other stuff. Well, the other thing to do, if you can, which is another thing about L.A. that I really like, is you can probably go and see them live. And that actually makes a big difference, too. If you, mm. you know, you, you go and see somebody perform, then that can actually, that's probably the most helpful thing, if you can do that. Because then you see what they're about, really. Do you think in the day and age that we live in, it's more, people are more inclined to, not pick up the phone and instead they'll send you a rambling email or or do you do you get phone calls and people kind of trying to check you out well you do get phone calls but it, it's it, you know i mean mostly i think what it is is that they've they, they either know somebody that's worked with you or they've heard some record that you've worked on that they really like which was the case with this thing in colorado they they this band had heard the the Bad Sons record that I worked on, and they really liked it, and so they they just sent the stuff to me to master because because of that, which actually brings up an interesting point because it, it's actually very hard to tell who's a really good mastering engineer and who isn't because in order to make that judgment, you'd really have to listen to the mixes, you'd have to listen to what they worked on because mm -hmm. you know maybe they didn't do much to it at all. I mean, in my, in my case, the, the Bad Sons record. For example, uh, that came out really good, but but I mean, really, I'd have to say that that um, you know it's more about the certainly more about the mixes. I mean, for some reason that that it was very easy to work on. So I'm not sure that I can claim that much credit for the way that record sounds. Really, is what I'm saying. It pretty much sounded like that. I just kind of you know optimized it really. Well, and in in some cases. Um you might have a really great mastering engineer and the mix is just sucked. And maybe the mastering engineer even got them up to beyond sucking to maybe borderline mediocre. Yeah. Then there comes the, you know, the question of, well, whose fault was that? Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, it just, it, it, it sort of points up the whole thing that if you, you know, the, the thing to do really, um, I mean, if I, if I, you know, my, my sort of advice to people, if I, if I, if I have any advice to them is, I mean, I think the way that it works is that you, you need to get involved with a group of people. You know, at the top end of things, you've got sort of, you meet people that have been doing this for a long time. They're like, well, I, you know, I send all my stuff to Bernie. I've been sending stuff to Bernie for years. So, you know, that was like sort of on the ground floor of their career. They have a group of people that they worked with and they're probably you know, kept those people, or they might've worked with different people, but certainly mastering engineers actually is sort of a comfort zone, I think. So we're talking like, about Bernie Grunman for those that don't know. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I think what you need to do is you need to find, you know, you need to work with talented people that are on their way up and become a member of the team. And um, so you all go up together, basically, I think is, mm -hmm. I think that's the formula you know, for success, because otherwise, well, you know, so there's, there's that whole thing. And then there's, then there's just kind of, yeah, there's the random element too. It's like, I, where does a lot of the work that I get? I don't even, I don't, where does it come from? I, I have no idea, actually. It's like somebody told somebody about something and all of a sudden somebody's calling you up. I, sometimes, sometimes I, sometimes I ask them, how did you, what, how come you're calling me? You know, how did you find out? A lot of times I, I don't even know actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you've been in the United States for quite a long time, but you are still a quintessential British individual in that you are not exactly Mr. 
hoorah, look at me, self-promotion kind of guy. No, you, not at all. You're a very reserved, quiet guy. Um, is that difficult in, yeah. in a place like Los Angeles? Yeah, it's really difficult. It's like, it's it's um, basically, I have this friend that I hang out with sometimes, and he always introduces me to people as a Grammy-winning mastering engineer. And inside, I'm like cringing, and I hate it, you know? <laughs> It's like, I, I and it's, a, yeah, it is a huge problem because in Los Angeles, that's not, that's not what you do. You know, you, you, so, but it, it's a British thing. I mean, in, in England, it's like, I guess in England, if somebody, usually if somebody's really successful, they know, they won't tell you that. Or at least if they have, well, some people will, but you know, I mean, I, I think, I think I, one of the nice things about English people, I think is that generally they can be very successful people, but they won't shove it down your throat you know at least not the first time you meet them you'll find out after a while oh that guy he does this and you're like oh okay great <clears throat> but they won't tell you you know and i've always i've always sort of liked that whole thing actually but yeah in a lot of cases i guess it probably hasn't served me that well um but that's just how i am you know I, i'm not you know I, I i can't change at this point you know um <laughs> but i just my technique is is you know i do the networking thing and I just kind of try to, I, I ask people about themselves, you know, and I, I get them to talk about themselves, really. And then if you approach it from the point of view of that you're you're making connections with people and, you know, it's really fun and it's you try to make it a nice interaction, try to make them feel good, then, you know, maybe that's a sort of a technique that I use. I don't know, you know, unconsciously anyway. But I think that's probably better than, you know, name dropping. Name the name dropping thing is I I just I I kind of although I do do it of course because I mean that is your in this business that's your resume isn't it it's like that's your calling you, card sure who have yeah. you worked with that's what everybody wants to know so can you speak on the topic of mastering in a facility versus uh, like you because you've experienced both I think uh, mastering and as an independent freelance person as opposed to mastering for a place like Infrasonic yeah. Well, like, it's nice. What are the pr pros and cons? Yeah. Well, I think it's nice to, I mean, part of it is that, um, you know, I like the idea, sort of old school, the idea of a facility, really. But I like the idea of supporting that. Uh, the, you know, the, the pros would be that if you have a nice place that's not your living room, then if you have, you know, Kanye West come in there or something like that, it's not, you know. But I, actually, I'm not sure how much of a thing that is anymore. I don't, it's, you know. But you'd have to have a pretty nice house to make that work, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, Having a mansion would work. Yeah, exactly. But I think uh, generally, you know, that's the thing about a facility is that it's it makes life easier for you because, you know, people like to be there. They're impressed with the way that it looks. And, you know, they're impressed that you're actually working in a facility, <laughs> you know. And, and so from that point of view, it looks it looks. You know, it looks better. And then on the other hand, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm sure that, uh, you know, working at home is, well, you can just go to work in your pajamas, you know, which is pretty great. You know, you can't beat that. So I don't know. I, I think probably, um, I, I would say that probably, you know, working in a facility, you, you, because being human nature as it is, you know, you, you probably wish you could work at home. And then when you're working at home, you probably wish you, could work in a facility I, I i i think that's probably how it goes well and being someone who's somewhat as we discussed you know you you not being uh, a big self-promoter i guess it, it kind of helps if you have a facility and a pr team to do the boasting for you because then you can do your job and mm -hmm. the people who specialize in facebook posts for the facility or mm -hmm. and even things like billing I would yeah. imagine. Yeah, exactly. That's all handled with them. No, that's a very that's a very big thing. Yeah, it helps a lot if you don't have to do everything yourself for sure. Um, but a certain amount of it you do kind of have to do yourself anyway because it's you know it's all of it's your name really it's it's the branding thing that is another word that I don't like to mention but uh, um, yeah you kind of do have to do that to yourself you you have to do that yourself to a certain extent because. It's your voice, you know, that's, you know, it's hard to have somebody else do that stuff for you, I think. And as far as survival, you're in a big town and there's a lot of competition. How does one survive in that that world? Or or is it like, 
you know, they say that when a Starbucks moves in on the same block as a mom and pop coffee shop, everybody, you know, that that coffee shop does really well. Do you think it's a similar thing mm. when you have a bunch of mastering engineers within uh, concentrated in in, a, in an area? Do you yeah, think that everybody a, benefits? That's an interesting thing, you know, and I because when I was thinking about moving down here, <clears throat> I went and talked to Eric Valentine actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked him, I said, do you, what do you, I'm thinking of moving down to LA. What do you think? And he was like, he said, well, he said, let's say you're a hat maker. He said, I, I would say that you want to work in a place where there's a lot of other hat makers, because that means that people buy hats. They know what hats are. They know how to use them. And, you know, there's a market for, for hats. There's a lot of other people. There's competition. But as long as you're good at what you do, then it should be okay. Which is better than being the only hat maker in town, <clears throat> you know. That was the way that he put it, which I thought was actually a pretty interesting, a pretty interesting way to look at it. But yeah, there is a ton of competition. I mean, especially these days, everybody, everybody masters records. I mean, everyone. I mean, aside from the lo- the potential loss of business, I mean, how do you feel about? Uh, mix engineers mastering their own stuff or mix engineers mastering part-time. I feel very sorry for them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that they have to do that because I, I've done that myself and it's it's horrible. I think it's horrible. I mean, I yeah. think it's very difficult. I think it's, in fact, it, the only way that it works really, I think, is if you, you know, if a month or two goes by after you've finished the mixes, then maybe if you mastered them, you'd be, it would be okay. But... This thing about finishing the mix, okay, we finished the mixes, now let's master it. It's like, it's crazy, actually. I mean, I, I've done it myself, so I know what I'm talking about. I, 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 I don't know how, you know, it's like, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, the whole point about it is, I mean, I'm not, I, I understand that, um, you know, people don't have the budget, so you do, and I mean, people, there's nothing, you know, it, to people that are talented, there's no reason why. I mean, Eric Valentine does mastering, for example. I don't think he doesn't advertise it, but... Um, he does stuff for certain people that certain clients that he does stuff that he likes. And he said, he told me, he was like, yeah, I he said, I'm not the kind of, I'm not that person that can do it like in one day and then it's done. He goes, it takes me a while and I have to listen to mm-hmm. it on a bunch of different stuff. But I, he goes, I, you know, it ta- it'll take me, you know, some time to get it right. But, um, so yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, if you know what you're doing and I mean, you, especially if you have time. Uh, to listen in different environments and stuff. You, you know, if you have a week or two, maybe before it has to be finished, and you check it out on a bunch of stuff, and you've got the opportunity to do that, yeah, I think it's possible to do a really good job. But you know, it's a lot easier if you can just hand it off to somebody else and let them worry about it. I mean, <laughs> it is nice. Yeah, I will say it is very nice to just say, "This is I'm done. I'm tired of listening to this. It's it's your turn." Right. I'm always intrigued at the time factor. What the hell is going on with people? Like, it's like, hey, we're building a house, but we've already booked the the house painter. And, oh, we were going to have to rush to build the house because the painter's coming. Yeah. Well, I think, actually, that was when I was listening to Michael Beinhorn's podcast, I, I'd like to see that book, actually, because... It's a great book. I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. I, I mean, I, I just hearing him talk about it a little bit, it sounded like... That's the kind of information that people really need, you know, because, yeah, the planning thing is, is you know, I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, musicians are probably not the most organized people, group of people in the world. But, I mean, yeah, that that's, I mean, the pre-production thing. I mean, I think most people, well, it seems like there's different kinds of projects. You know, sometimes it's like people just, you know, they'll make the whole record themselves, and you know in their bedroom and they'll just build it and mix it as they go and record and mix as you go get all the sounds and then redo stuff and you know there's that sort of method of doing things which sometimes can work pretty well but then if you definitely if you've got a band and you've got different people it's you know that's a whole different thing you have to be a bit more organized about it i think but yeah the the beinhorn book is is really fascinating and it I think Michael and I both recognize that uh, there was a a symbiotic uh, type of thing going on between his book and uh, this podcast and that we really kind of talk about the the bigger picture things around the whole 
industry rather than you mm-hmm. know the minutia of what's the setting on the 1073 yeah. yeah you know yeah oh no it was a 1081 and you you know you took the you know it's yeah. I can't tell you how many emails I get from people just, oh, thank God you didn't go into that conversation. Yeah. Um, so I, I would encourage you to read his book is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Mm. Let me ask you something about uh, mastering in general. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, yeah, we're going to have so-and-so master it. I don't even know what mastering is, but everybody says this guy's good. So, mm. Yeah. Why is it that mastering is such a mystical thing to artists, but they, they seem to understand the recording and the mixing process for the most part? Mm. Uh, you know, I've had a few exceptions to that, but um, for the most part, mastering seems to be the great as the, the, the dark art, the, yeah, black, the black art. It's like, well, why thank, is it so mystical to so many people? Yeah, thank goodness something is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's not it's all good to be the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think when it comes down to it, really, it's it's as what I was saying earlier. It's something. It you know, it takes a long time <clears throat> to learn how to do it, to learn how to listen to something and quickly assess, you know, where it can go, like how far it can, what kind of help it needs, and stuff like that. Um, but above all, it's it's really it's an aesthetic. You, when you come down to it, people, certain people, different people have a different sound. Like, you know, Bernie Grunman stuff, their stuff that they do there all sounds like it's, you know, loud as hell and it's sort of big and wide, you know, sounds good. It has a sound to it. Um, and then it's just, so you, you have the sound in your head, you, you hear it. And I, I think that, that um, I mean, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't really studied this too much, but it would be interesting to kind of, go to other, you know, master stuff at somebody else's place and see what they do. And But I think it's basically just how you hear it. You know, my sound is kind of like, um, I would say it's kind of clear and detailed, you know, like that. And also, you know, I, I tend to concentrate on the vocal a lot, mm-hmm. like try and make the vocal, because, I mean, I, I feel like the vocal is like, you know, in, in popular music anyway, it's like a huge part of of uh, what goes on, if you can get a little more romance in the voice, you know, a little more kind of, uh, so that people find it, you know, are, are sort of engaged more. I think that's that's certainly a thing to, to concentrate on. But <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think generally, um, yeah, different different uh, different people have have uh, different sounds, I guess. And, and, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's a mystery. As you say, it's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I'm just always perplexed. I'm like, well, um, and to try to explain it, I think I, I dig them deeper into a hole of mystery and yeah, it's uh, it, yeah, it is a very interesting thing, you know. To be honest, I mean, I, I'm not sure that I really understand it either completely. Although I think it's most likely, um, it's in in technical terms, it's to do with you know mostly to do with gain staging through analog gear, really, and how mm. that introduces different textures. It's also about clipping converters you know and how that sounds certain ways so you've got a you've got a bunch of different things you can do you can do you can either i mean sometimes you do you just use plugins because Mm -hmm. you don't want to take it out of the box because it's already you know it's got everything it needs really it doesn't need any more texture uh so sometimes you sometimes you just use plugins sometimes um you know in my chain i've got shadow hills compressor which has the transformers on it and that thing is can work really well for some things, but you know it's pretty drastic. So you want to be careful. Um, you want to be careful what you're doing with it. But generally, yeah, it's like it's how to get it really loud and punchy, and so that it sounds good. It doesn't sound like sort of overdone or squashed, or it just sounds open and big. And and uh, sorry, I've forgotten what the question was. Now I'm sort of rambling on. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Uh, we were just riffing like on, on it, what mastering is. What mastering is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, well, I suppose you sort of know it when you hear it, really, because that's the fun part of it. And it, it's sometimes I think it's it's a, a bit sad, really, because my my life consists of you know people sending me stuff, and then I send it back to them, and then 
Because you never know, basically. You, we use the same for you, I'm sure. You know, you send out mixes and you, you just don't know and you hope they like them. And then there's like silence for a couple of days and then they write to you and they say, yeah, it sounds really great, or, you know, and then you're happy. <laughs> you I know. know. It's, like, it's like a little sort of, it's like somebody liking your thing on Facebook because a little adrenaline rush comes along with it. And you're like, oh, great, they like it. That's fantastic. And then you feel like, yeah, I'm really, you know, I'm really, I'm really good at my job. And then, and then it goes every once in a while, you know, it doesn't hit the spot. You know, probably I'd say maybe one or two times a year I do something and it's like, well, you know. You know, I always, I always think of this like, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I remember hearing, um, there was some Beatles box set thing that came out and it was a bunch of like alternative mixes or alternative takes. Maybe it was mixes. That's what it was. And it was like songs you'd been familiar with all your life. And you all of a sudden were hearing them with a completely different take. And I don't know if it was the Phil Spector stuff that had been unphil Spectorized or something, mm. but uh, I remember hearing it going, wow, that just sounds so wrong. Yeah. And and I it occurred to me, I thought, do people, when they hear a mix or a master, do they just accept it at face value and then say, all right, well, that's that's the way it is. It's like, if um, I met you and uh, all I knew about you was you, you dressed in a jeans and t-shirt all the time, and then all of a sudden you started to dress in a complete three-piece suit. I think I would at my gut go, oh, no, oh, John, you changed. <laughs> you, you're, you're wearing the three-piece suit now. What happened to the jeans and T-shirt look? I don't know if I like this. I, <laughs> although you may look better with a three-piece suit on, I might, you know, because of familiarity, I might mm. balk at that. So I wonder, like, if sometimes people hear a demo or a rough mix and once they hear it, it's cemented in their brain and no, ma no matter whether you make it better or not, yeah. they're just not going to get on board because they're used to the jeans and t-shirt, not the three-piece suit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, a, I think it's a very good, it's a very good, a very funny analogy actually, but um, I might start doing that actually, Matt. I'll, <clears throat> you know, start wearing a suit and see. You'll start wearing a suit yeah, to work? I think that, that, that yeah. could be a thing to do. You but, could go um, the opposite direction, just wear your PJs to work, and people would think you're crazy. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think, uh, I think actually, um, one of the things that I try to do is, you know, when I'm working on people's stuff, I'll, I'll do whatever, you know, I'll go on a, some kind of voyage with it, and I'll go this, I'll put it through this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and then I get to the point where I think it's sounding really good, and then I'll print it, and then I'll do whatever else to it. And then I'll get the original mix out and I'll, you know, turn my thing down 25 dB or no, I'm joking. I'll turn <laughs> it down, turn it down like 6 dB or whatever it is. And so that you match the levels and then compare and, and just really listen to the differences in, because, you know, what, what they, what their vision was when they sent it to you, you know, and, it, and it, it's going to sound different because, uh, you know, the master versions would be flattened out quite a bit in some respects um, but just listen to the drum tone, you know, make sure that it's, uh, make sure that the the sort of relative balances haven't been, they're not too far out of whack. And this is especially true with Latin music, actually, because all those little shakers and stuff, if you add a lot of high end to it, they get completely out of control and they take over the entire mix. That, that's maybe a way to get around your, your suit and tie and jeans and t-shirt thing is, is, is to make sure that you actually haven't gone, maybe you, maybe, maybe it's like, the jeans are still there, but there's a shirt and tie now. Right. You know they're wearing I mean? a sport coat. Yeah. There's something. <laughs> there's business some, casual. Right. Business casual. Maybe you haven't gone too far into the realm of, you know, some complete sort of, you know, you know realignment of everything. So, so I think right. that you haven't gone from like Fugazi to Taylor Swift. Exactly. Mind you, some people, you know, maybe, maybe you might like the, uh, the suit and the, you know, the, the uh, Armani suit on your music, you know, you might say, well, that looks pretty good. Uh, and, and then sometimes, yeah, go back, you listen to it and you go, hmm, I think I better redo it and do this instead. You know, sometimes you might, you might do that. It's kind of, I'm starting to sound like 
Nigel from Spinal Tap now. <laughs> Back to what you were saying earlier, though, about, uh, you know, you send it off and you wait for the word and that person's word could be devastating or completely uplifting. It's, it's always interesting. Like, I know from a mixing perspective, like I'll mix something and I th- I'm just listening to it. Bigger picture, forest for the trees kind of concept. And I'm like, all right, this is this is great. And you send it off and two days passes, no word. And finally, <laughs> yeah, everybody likes it. But the drummer really is unhappy with the snare sound. <laughs> It's like, oh, fuck me. <laughs> Those drummers, and you know, being a drummer, I could say that. Those drummers are just a colossal pain in the ass. Yeah, that's a very, actually, it's funny you should say that. You you reminded me, actually, of when we were working together, uh, when we were working in the same building over there. And there was one time when I was trying to mix these drums. I remember I, I was like, it was horrible. And <clears throat> I remember I walked down to your room and I said, Matt, you you have to, I'll do anything, you know, I'll do anything you want. You've got to, you have to help me. And I remember you came into my room and you sat down and you're like, and I had like all these like weird gating system on the drums and some kind of stuff. And you were like, you sat down and you started looking at the screen. And you went, what's this? And I, well, that's okay. You know, so, well, well, let's take that off. And then what's this? <laughs> <laughs> what's the compression? Well, let's take that off. And I think you just took everything off the drum, pretty much. <laughs> and then you go, there, that sounds pretty good. And I was like, wow. That was a very interesting uh, moment for me, actually. Because drums, you know, I feel I feel like people that actually are drummers have a huge advantage over the rest of us when it comes to mixing, because the drums is such a, a big part of the sound of a well, certain types of music anyway. And I think if you've played drums, I think that's a huge advantage. You know how to deal with that stuff, you know, it's producing wise as well i'm sure oh man it's it's really it's fascinating and i'll and i'll just relate uh this experience and i'm not trying to shill for steven but I, i'm a big fan of steven slate's uh trigger mm. for drum augmentation or replacement whatever you want to however you people choose to look at it and some people the you know the true diehards will be like oh if you can, if you have to trigger drums you're you're not doing your job well <laughs> In my case, you know, I I do the best I can and I recorded this band and drummer's pretty good. You know, he's not the best, but pretty good. And, you know, you're given a short amount of time to work and, you know, 11 songs, three days. Mm. All right. You know, and if you have a drummer who's remotely stubborn, um, it's hard because me as a drummer, I hear I'm, I'm already mixing it in my head and, and I hear the snare drum and go, that snare, that kick in the long run may be a problem, but this guy's not going to budge. So I'll just record it and I'll figure it out on the back end. And sure enough, I'm in that process right now. And I, I got a hold of the Blackbird samples that John McBride did. And uh, oh my God, the tones that fit the genre. Mm-hmm. And I, But I'm crossing my fingers that I'm not going to get crazy notes back from the drummer about the kick and the snare sound. But. Yeah. Well, I wonder how, I mean, it's like I, I read this thing the other day that Al Schmidt doesn't use any compression or EQ on anything. He just, he does it all with, you know, microphone with the, the sort of recording thing. I, I wonder how it would work for him if he was working on the record that you're working on. <laughs> well, it's interesting that it would, that, that brings up a, a potentially deep conversation. Um, and that is the people that Al Schmidt work with. I mean, Al makes a lot of money per day. Um, I, I don't know the, the exact amount, but uh, if you're working with Al Schmidt, you probably have your shit together. Yeah, exactly. Or your Schmidt together. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I figure, you know, Al Schmidt is generally working with people who are totally have their act together. And that process of working together, things probably are done in a very particular way and they're done well. Yeah. It's very odd to have somebody like Al Schmidt, who's been at it for so long, working with a band that comes to him and says, well, we have three days to track and we only have this much money. See, I think the same thing applies to mastering. I think it's like if you... I mean, I wonder if 
or I used to, you know, when I was working in San Francisco, I, I would think, I, I would think to myself, I wonder if somebody sent this to Ted Jensen, you know, if, I mean, he's used to doing stuff that he's used to probably most of the stuff that he gets, he doesn't have to do anything to, I would imagine you would think. So how would these people, how would these people do if they had to deal with what we have to deal with? Is what I'm saying. It's like, I don't know. You know. I mean, uh, maybe that's, maybe that's the catch. I mean, maybe if you get to that level, you get to pick and choose and mm. those that come to you are appreciative of who you are and the, what you bring to the table. But, but then again, I'm sure Al is just doing what he always does. He's just dealing with way more uh, talented people who mm -hmm. are taking it incredibly seriously. Yeah. And their, and their budgets are bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's so, got a, he's got a star on the, uh, on Hollywood Boulevard now too. You know, I said it in one of the other shows. He looks incredible. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I mean, I took one look at him. I thought, if I could only look that good when I'm that age. And uh, somebody sent me a message on Facebook saying, you know, Al eats well. He's very healthy. He hasn't mm -hmm. smoked in, you know, X amount of years. And yeah, no, so. I, I met him. Uh, he was at a he was at a he was at a a party uh, at at the studio, and I I had been outside and I walked in, and there was Al Schmidt in my room and there was a whole bunch of people around him. And he's one of these guys that it's kind of interesting. He's one of these legends in the industry. When you see them out in public, there's like a little group of people that sort of move. Like if he walks over there, they're kind of, there's this circle, they give him space, but the, the circle kind of follows him or, you know, it's like the people kind of move with him at a disrespectful distance. You know, it's kind of weird. It's like, uh, I always feel about I always feel strange about the recording thing in general because they're not really famous people, you know. They're only famous people to us, so they're mm -hmm. kind of they when they're around these things, they act like they're famous and they, people treat them like they're famous, but they're not really famous people. So it's a little weird. Right. Um, but anyway, Al was in, you know, he was standing in the room by my uh, desk, and so I I said, you know, hey, you know, you're in my room. I tried a little bit of humor, you know, a little bit of English humor which completely right. fell flat. He was kind of, he didn't, he didn't sort of think it was funny at all. <laughs> um, I said, well, yeah, what are you doing in my room? So that, that didn't work too well. But yeah, he's, he's sort of, yeah, Al's a legend, you know, he's definitely, he's up there. What do you think about the cult of personality in the pro audio world? The cult of the celebrity engineer, well, the Chris Lord Algies, the Al Schmidt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically... I don't think it's, uh, you've got to be talented. I don't think it's like sort of, I think it's just that those people care about it more than maybe other, there's other people that work that are really good that don't do that, you know? Um, but you can, you can, you can do, it's kind of like, um, you know, if that's what your business plan is, you know, you do, it's like basically, you know, in Los Angeles, it's like the pathway to, uh, you know, being the guy who's, you know, in all the magazines or whatever is, you speak on panels, you know, you got, they have a mastering panel at SAE or, or, or whatever, you know, which I've done, you know, I did one of those with Gavin Larson. And then you sort of become, you know, through social media and so forth, you become, you know, a personality, I guess that's, that, I guess that's, that's what it is. But it, I, I think it's very time consuming. And, uh, um, um, well, I suppose the other aspect of it is that somebody like Chris Lord Algae, um, I, I have a feeling that that's not going to happen again. Those kind of things, you know, where people—it's kind of a or Bernie Grunman, for example. They just kind of, because really, you know, in a lot of cases, like Bernie, pretty much invented, well, not him and other people, but pretty much invented the modern mastering engineer as a separate entity from the studio. You know, because, well, as you probably know, originally the mastering thing was like, um, well, Paul Stubblebine told me this. It was called transfer. In the old days, like at EMI or something in England, uh, and uh, they would they would like you know you'd have like some guy that showed promise as a recording engineer or producer or whatever, and you'd put them in mastering for a couple of years or, or transfer, so that they could actually discover how much could go on the medium because you know the which was vinyl, and and so they could see the limitations of bass, high end, and so forth, and how to do all that. Then they would then they would let them record knowing you know the parameters of the the release format and so forth like that so originally they were just they were just there to get a good transfer 
And then at a certain point, you know, people wanted to put more bass on stuff. So somebody would do that and then they would set up their own shop and then people would take them stuff. But so, so, you know, that, that's sort of how mastering. So those guys that were sort of the first in you, I don't think you'll ever, nobody will ever be able to, you know, the Doug Sachses and the Bernies and the Bob Ludwigs. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess the guy in this town at the moment who's kind of stepping into that is, is Gavin actually, you know, seems mm -hmm. like he's kind of, becoming a, an elder statesman of some kind, but um, I don't know. Do you think we're, are you saying that we're kind of at the end of, you know, our, our, our Chris and uh, Bernie and maybe Bob, are they kind of the, the tail end of the old music industry in mm -hmm. terms of the superstar? Well, I, I think they, they came up in a system that was pretty well defined. You know, they got to work on really good stuff. I mean, for example, Brian Gardner, I remember him, reading something that he said he I think he worked in San Francisco for a while and he said that like you could you know you know in the pop music thing you'd cut the record and then the next day you listen to it on the radio so you would kind of understand really well you know you'd, you'd sort of have instant feedback as you know you'd learn that would be your instead of listening to it in the car you know taking your thing home and listening to it on your home system or whatever it would be on the radio, you know, and then so you'd hear how that sounded and you'd modify your thing accordingly. That whole thing, I'm not sure that that really, you know, that, that kind of instant feedback on a huge scale, that, that doesn't happen really anymore, I don't think. I mean, it, it, it does, you know, I've heard things that I've done on the radio. Um, I don't really listen to the radio. Music on the radio is the problem. <laughs> Otherwise, I might hear more of it, but... But you know, so there's that there's that whole thing. It depends on the release format is key. So if it's vinyl, or if it's the radio, you know, if it's like, um, uh, so you're mastering for that. Mostly, actually, I think what I'm mastering for, quite honestly, is I think my stuff sounds really good on laptop speakers, mm -hmm. and I kind of have that in mind when I'm working on it because I had two teenage kids that they don't really, you know, they they just they'll listen to a song on their laptop with no bass, you know. And the song has to work like that. And then earbuds is another huge thing. So I think basically that's, um, those are things that I have in mind when I'm working on stuff, actually. I'm not really thinking about somebody listening to it on a big stereo in their living room so much. Although you have right. something in there for them, you know, you might do a little bit of 30 cycle enhancement just to kind of, for those people that can hear it, you know. <laughs> whoever that might be so. interesting well thanks for being on the show john it's 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 good to talk to you and and what a treat to have a, a good friend on yeah good to talk to you too matt so um thanks for having me on we'll talk soon excellent all right john greenham on the working class audio podcast we're out of time today our music is by cliff truesdell our uh, voiceover intro is chuck smith and our uh, social media and additional audio support is provided by Cole Williams. And, of course, want to give thanks to our friends over at GearSluts.com for supporting us. And that's it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at GearSpace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.